Good morning. I don't need to speak this morning. Isn't that amazing what God does? But, Louie, the thing I have to appreciate is when she criticized you and said, you had no idea what you were doing, but you had a vision. God wants our heart. He will do the rest. When we step out by faith, it is absolutely amazing what God does and how he pulls things together. It, it's just it's such a thrill just to listen. God is doing some awesome things in this church. It is such a privilege for me to be a part of this church and have the opportunity to teach and share. And, uh, but I'm blessed. I'm blessed by the people here. I'm blessed by what God is doing. And uh, I just trust that you are enjoying the Lord as much as I am. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Lord, help me to slow down this morning and just listen to you. Father, you're an awesome, awesome God. You have so much to share to our hearts. And Lord, I pray that as we just share this morning, you would touch our hearts and help us to understand that it is our heart that you want. Nothing else, not our doing, not our busyness, just our heart. Lord, once you have our heart, everything else falls right into place. Thank you for loving us with a love that is indescribable and something we might never fully understand until the day of glory. But, Father, it is an awesome thing to wake up in the morning and be loved by God. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> we are doing the Summer with the Sun series in the book of Mark. I will be in Mark chapter 1. just want to share a couple thoughts before we get there. Um, <clears throat> last week, uh, Pastor Tim we did Jesus' healing of the leper. And he did an unbelievable job and uh, of healing the leper. And Pastor Tim, quite a description of leprosy as you begin to share. And I knew I was speaking this week, uh, as I might have asked uh, Tim if I could share right at the end of church last week, but sometimes we get this idea that you read the Bible and the scriptures that leprosy is gone, that somehow it was licked. I've been in two leprosy colonies in Thailand. And while in that colony, one in Bangkok, um, but in that leprosy colony, and, you know, I want you to think about this this morning. When you get out of bed in the morning, or as, you, as your children grow up, or as we have been growing up, we have this capacity to dream about our future, to dream about what's going to happen, our, what career we want to take, what we're going to do with our life, what kind of promotions we're going to get. We dream. We dream about all these different things. Well, let me understand this. When a leper gets out of bed in the morning in a leprosy colony, he has nothing to dream for except that he's going to die of leprosy someday. He is not allowed out of the leprosy colony because of the contagiousness of leprosy. He has no dreams about this life. And what is so amazing about being in that leprosy colony was that I got to participate in their church service. 
And I got to watch these lepers with their hands missing and their fingers missing and their ears missing, sitting there praising God and being excited about who God is and what God has done. What an unbelievable, indelible mark it made on my heart that day. That God, life is not about our future. Life is not about our dreams. Life is not about our careers. Life is in Jesus Christ. And in the midst of the darkest circumstances of life, these people could sing and praise the Lord. And it has left a mark in my heart that I probably will never leave me until, until Judgment Day. So I just thought I'd share that, that God is able to bring joy and hope to people in the darkest moments of their lives. And you know who cared for the lepers? Christians. You know, people can mock Christianity all they want, but in the third world countries, and, and as you hear these, these teens, that God struck the heart of our young people. You know, as God strikes the heart of people, when the gospel gets a hold of our heart, we can't help but want to care. It is Christians that start these leprosy colonies. I'm sure in other parts of the world also. But it's because God puts a a work of grace in our heart that we desire to be used by him, and then God lays certain and specific burdens on different people's hearts as we learn to walk with him. This morning, we're going to talk about the life of Jesus. Here's an unbelievable. You know, if you want to have fun with Scripture, you have to just read through the Gospels for the sake of enjoyment, not out of the thing i got to do to have my devotions, but read the Gospel and just ask the Lord to show you Jesus. The best, One of the best books I've ever read about Jesus was The Jesus I Never Knew by Philip Yancey. It's just an awesome book. I just got to see Jesus in a light that I never understood him. And uh, it just helped open up the Scriptures to me and and I and I watch what Jesus does, and I got a chuckle. Jesus, Jesus is unreal. You know, he he definitely was not of the norm. You know, Jesus. First of all, you know, he calls unlearned fishermen. He walks by these fishermen and says, "Come and follow me." So he now has a following of unlearned fishermen. He performs all these miracles. Then he does the unbelievable, as Tim did last week. He touched a leper. Nobody touched a leper. Nobody wanted leprosy. Jesus not only touches the leper, he heals the leper. Now, you could just see everybody standing back and going, you know, and then the other one was when he let the woman touch him in the midst of the crowd and heals the woman. Then there's one event between last week and then this week's message. He, um, Jesus is preaching in this house that these people let down a paralytic through the roof because there was no room to bring the guy in on a stretcher. So right in front of all these people, and you've got to understand, I, I, Jesus is interesting. You know, they lay this, leper, this, this man on the um, stretcher right in front of him, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And you could just hear everybody in the place going, what did he do? I mean, who can forgive? This guy blasphemes. Nobody can forgive sins but but God. And he says, but to let you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, he looks at the guy and he says, get up and walk. And he heals him. But Jesus has a way. Now he is going to stagger the religious 
and the political society of the Jews in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he began to walk along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And he says, follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. You know, um, he approaches, now Jesus approaches a tax collector named Levi. He Now, by the way, he's called Matthew in the book of Matthew. I think because uh, Matthew is Levi. But I think he changed his name for various reasons. Maybe he was part of the mafiosa and wanted to change his name and hide. I don't know. But Matthew took the liberty of changing his name in the book of Matthew. But he's mentioned as Levi in both Mark and Luke. Same event. So, but this tax collector named Levi is sitting at a booth collecting tolls. You know, you know how much we like tolls? They just raise the tolls and get on the bridge. I didn't know that. I'm still too cheap to go over. So I didn't, I still go over the free bridge, you know. And as everybody yells at me and they tell me I, I spend more money on my gas waiting to get across the free bridge than I probably would have spent on the toll going over the free, you know, the pay bridge. But anyway, that's the way we are. You know, we don't like toll collectors. And uh, I think it's even worse on truck drivers. Uh, but he's not like the toll collector who works for the Delaware River Port Authority. Okay? He's not that type of tax collector. He had a quota to make for Rome. Rome's, you know, Rome told him how much money he has to pull in if he wants to remain as that tax collector. And then everything he makes over that quota, he can keep for himself. Everything he made over that, he keeps for himself. You know, did I mention that his name was Levi? He had the authority to hire thugs. If people didn't want to pay their taxes, he could hire thugs to shake the money out of them. He could do whatever he wanted to collect those taxes. He could tax the number of legs on the donkey. He, they tax the axles on the trucks, you know. But he could, he could tax whatever he wants. He could tax the packages, the number of people. He could do whatever he wants to collect his money sitting there. Rome did not care, and they don't care how much money he made or how rich he got doing it. Did I say his name was Levi? It was a great gig for making money. Rich people were able to do that because it was like a a franchise. Rome actually auctioned off the tax collector's position as a franchise. The person who could afford to pay the most to Rome to, to buy that franchise, it was his. It was a great spot to make money. Tax collecting went to the highest bidder for the franchise. It was like a business. It was a dishonest business. And no one cared how much the tax collector collected so long as Rome got its quota. Did I say his name was Levi? Why am I emphasizing that? Levi is a a Jew. Levi is a Jew. But who was he collecting money for? Rome. He's collecting money for Rome. He was a Jew making money off his own countrymen and supporting Rome. Israel was under bondage to Rome. They lived in their country, but Rome ruled the land and taxed the land for Rome's benefit. 
Understand this, the Jews hated the Romans. They called them Gentile dogs. I mean, that was their name for any Gentile for the most part. They called them Gentile dogs. They worshipped idols, etc. They didn't understand the true God. Levi was cheating his own people to help Rome. A tax collector to the Jews was the worst of the worst of the Jews. They hated tax collectors. A tax collector was not even allowed in the synagogue, and the Jews equated tax collectors with murderers and thieves. Don't we equate tax collectors as a thief too, you know, in this country? We're crazy, aren't we? Anyway, the Jews, the Jews not only equated the tax collectors with murderers and thieves, but they had a tradition that it was okay to lie to the tax collector. I'm afraid we do that too in this country. Uh, so anyway, if we're getting convicted, that's good. But anyway, the Jews equated tax collectors, murderers and thieves. Um, they looked at tax collectors as the scum of the earth. Now let's go back to Jesus. Jesus calls these unlearned fishermen. Then he turns around and he touches a leper. Then he stands there in front of the establishment and says, I can forgive sins and proves it. Now, of all things, in front of the Jewish people, he comes along and he tells the tax collector, come and follow me. <clears throat> you know, you, you have to admit, you know, that um, I did this last night. I started with my notes and then never looked at them again. And uh, so, but... He staggers, he staggers the Jewish religious establishment by calling a hated tax collector into his company, and now he even goes to his home to feast. What is Jesus doing? You know, he, he is obviously committing religious and political suicide. Don't you just fall in love with Jesus? He was not afraid to challenge the status quo of life. He was never afraid to challenge the status quo of life. And he saw people as people and people in need. Always. He saw the tax collector's heart. You know, what's interesting, and this is the one thing that always challenges us when you look at this verse, he says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, the large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax collector's booth, follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Don't you always wonder? I mean, if, if I walked by your office, how many of you work in an office? So if I walked by your office and I knocked on the door and opened the door and I said, hey, come and follow me, how many of you would get up and leave your job and follow me? I'm not getting any confidence here, you know. Nobody's going to do that. And yet, he does it twice now. He does it to the fishermen. And he does it to Levi. And so often people use these passages as a guilt trip, trying to put people on a guilt trip. It's Jesus is not interested in what we can do. He is interested in our heart. And so often, first of all, you need to understand that these events were not the first time that any of them had seen Jesus. All the fishermen had seen Jesus long before this. Now, you read Matthew... <clears throat> and uh, Mark, when you look at the fishermen, and you just see that Jesus comes along and says, come and follow me. 
But you see a little bit more in the book of Luke, and I'm gonna, I wanna, just want to show you what happened to Peter, because I want you to understand that there was a lot more involved than just the fact that Jesus is walking by the water and saying, come follow me, and all of a sudden they get up and leave. All right? <clears throat> uh, look at Luke chapter 5. I just want to show you the event that was taking place. The scriptures don't tell you all that goes on. In this case, Luke taking the same event, talking about Peter, does. In Luke chapter 5, verse 1, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God. Now, notice the people are listening to Jesus. You know, he had a way of speaking where people wanted to hear what he had to say. It was something about Jesus that people just loved. And they were listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, who is Peter, by the way, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. Where was Peter at this time? Where's Peter? Simon. He's in the boat. He's in the boat. He's in the boat while Jesus is teaching all the people around him. Now, I don't know what Jesus said that day, but he was teaching people that day. When he had finished speaking, he says to Peter, Simon, he says, put out in the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. So Simon, Peter, answered, Master, we're fishermen. We know. We haven't caught anything all night. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. You were just a very inspiring speaker, and I like you. But I want you to understand that we're fishermen. We've been fishing all night, and we haven't caught nothing. But you say so. We're going to do this. So when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Now, I don't know what Jesus was teaching, but I know that Jesus turned around and used the miracle to get a hold of Peter's heart. All of a sudden, Peter realized, who? All this stuff I just heard, all of a sudden, God wants to put that into my heart. But Peter says, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. Boy, isn't it interesting? He turns around, the Lord says this over and over. When God gets a hold of our heart, when we see ourselves for the way we really are and how desperately short of the glory of God that we are, he says, he was astonished at the miracle. And so were his partners, James and John. So remember, when he walked by the Sea of Galilee and said, come and follow me, James and John, they were all astonished. When they were following Jesus, they knew they were following God, the Son of God. And they had already been introduced all the way back in John chapter 1. They had known who Jesus was. But Jesus finally got a hold of their hearts. But then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, and they left everything and followed him. You know, now, I I share you that event just to let you know that there was more going on in life than that. We go back to Mark chapter 2. I don't know what Matthew was going on in Matthew's heart, 
Matthew might have been in that building when Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic. We don't know. But Matthew was out there collecting tolls all the time. It wasn't like Matthew didn't know who Jesus was. It probably wasn't that Matthew... I'm sure Matthew knew who Jesus claimed to be. And he probably heard all the scuttle and everything else that was going on around him. Twice, he says he walked, he walked right from the lake. He might have even been able to hear Jesus speak right from his toll booth. Who knows? But Jesus knew Matthew's heart. And he knew what was going on in Matthew's heart. And he said, come and follow me. So Matthew gets up and he follows the Lord. One of the, the most interesting things, I think, you know, for both Peter and the fishermen and for Matthew, is that somehow they began to realize, especially Matthew, Matthew must have realized that life was not in collecting taxes. It's one thing for them to leave an honest business, which they did with fishing. But Matthew knew the moment he walked away from that table, he could never go back. He knew. He knew when he got up from that table that there are oodles of people waiting to buy that franchise, to sit there and make that money that he was making collecting taxes. But somehow in his heart, Matthew recognized that I don't want to live my life like this anymore. I'm done. This is not life. Life is in Christ and in Christ alone. And something in Jesus caught his heart and he said, I'm, I'm, I'm gone. And what's really interesting is as you go right from there, the next two things that occur, the first thing he said to Peter was, don't be afraid. The moment Jesus caught Peter's heart, he said to him, don't be afraid. From now on you will what? You will be fishers of men. What's the very first thing that you see Matthew doing? The first thing that Matthew does after he gets up and follows Jesus is what? He has a feast at his home and he invites all his friends to come and meet Jesus. Are we so in love with Jesus that we want our friends and family and relatives to meet him also? You know, Matthew couldn't wait. Somewhere sitting at that table, Matthew had made a decision in his heart and maybe in his heart he felt unworthy. But Jesus knew how Matthew was feeling. And he hit the right notes. Matthew might have been sitting there thinking, I wonder if there is any hope for me. And Jesus walks by and says, come and follow me. And Matthew is up and he is gone. And then he is so overwhelmed, he sits there and has a feast and invites all his friends who were publicans and sinners. And they have a feast to Jesus. And then comes some of my favorite texts here. Verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? What's wrong with that question? What's wrong with that Here are the scribes and the Pharisees sitting there saying, why? Why is Jesus sitting there? Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? What were the scribes and the Pharisees saying? What were they saying? Yeah, that those people are not worthy. And we are. Okay? And, And the very fact that they say, why is Jesus sitting with tax collectors and sinners? 
they were saying what about themselves? They're better. Not only are they better, that they're not what? They're not sinners. Well, what's wrong with that picture? Okay? The Bible says what? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, Jesus looks at the scribes and the Pharisees and you see in his heart. You know, and, and by the way, and that's what the other thing, Pastor Tim, with this whole series, we started with the idea that Jesus came to what? Seek and to save that which was lost. And by the way, the scribes and the Pharisees were lost. And you see Jesus, why does Jesus challenge the status quo? Because he loved the scribes and the Pharisees. But he had to continue to challenge their status quo because they walked in self-righteousness. Nothing keeps us away from God more than our own personal self-righteousness or thinking that we're doing well or that we're doing great. You know, that's the thing that, that is the biggest obstacle to us understanding the grace of God and understanding the, the, the neatness of walking with Christ and enjoying fellowship with him every day is our own personal self-righteousness. But he looks at them and he says, you know, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Was he telling them that, well, you're the righteous and you don't need me? Was that, is that what he meant by that? No. He said, go and learn. He said, learn that I have come to call. You need to learn that you need me. You know, um, Okay. The one thing that's interesting is that if Jesus has called, come to call the, the sinner, and we look at the scribes and the Pharisees, who were the scribes and the Pharisees? Who were they in those days? They were the what? The religious leaders of the day. They were the people that went to the synagogue every Saturday. I think they went on Saturdays. And then, uh, you know, these were the people that, you know, they kept the law. Their whole idea, their whole thing, their whole discussions were talking about the law and how to keep the law and how to do this and how to do that. You know, sometimes we misunderstand what sin is. Sometimes we equate the fruit of the flesh as sin instead of recognizing that the sinfulness of man when Adam and Eve sinned, what was the sin that we inherited from Adam? What enticed Eve to eat of that apple? Uh, it wasn't an apple, I'm sorry. What enticed Eve to eat that fruit? The desire to what? The desire to be like God. If I can be like God, I don't need God. That's the thing that enticed Eve. The sin of Adam, the passed down, is an independent spirit, a spirit that does not want to need God. And what happens when we live in independence of God, we go about trying to establish our own way of life that will somehow bring us life. And we try this. The woman at the well thought that life was in having a husband. She had five of them. When Jesus finally got a hold of her heart, 
he began to show her. And you know what? He never put her down. He simply said, you know, life is not in having a man. Life is in Christ. It is me. I am the well of living water. Life is in Christ and in Christ alone. It is not in a doctrine. It is not in an organization. It is not in this building. It is in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He is life. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son hath not life. Matthew saw life coming to him across the lake. And life said to him, come and follow me. And Matthew said, whatever I've been doing isn't worth it. I'm going to follow Christ. He is life himself. Peter, when Jesus said, when everybody walked away from him, when Jesus said, except you eat this body and drink this blood, you know, and all these people got up and left him, Jesus looked at Peter and says, will you leave also? And Peter said, no, where can we go? You have the words of life. To you only. Life is in Christ. It is so easy for us as believers to lose our way and our joy. It is so easy to confuse doing for living. God is interested in our heart. He is interested in a daily living relationship with us. He died to have a living relationship with us. He took our sins away so that we would be free to fellowship again with God. He wants a relationship with us. He does not want a ritual. We will never seek his leadership in our lives until we realize how much he loves us and desires to have a relationship with us. We grow up with all types of false ideas of God that keep us from running to him. You know, he is able to bring joy to the dying lepers in Bangkok. And he is able to bring joy to our hearts as we begin to seek him and begin to understand all that he has done for us and is doing for us daily. The Christian life cannot be lived in our strength. It has to be lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is our role model for the Christian life. He walked totally according to the will of the Father in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he wants us to do with our life every day. But we need to see how much We need him. Let me close with this one little thought. So often, sometimes in our lives, we get this idea that God gets tired of us. He gets tired of how often we fall or how often we fail. And sometimes we sit there and think, the only time I ever pray to the Lord is when I have a need. And God must, you know, he must get tired of it. We, we, we have all these things. Satan throws so many darts at us. And we sit back and think, why would God do anything for us? You know, I don't even think about him during the day. I get so busy during the day, I forget that I'm even a Christian sometimes. And I know God gets tired of my coming to him only when I have a need. What is wrong with that thought? What is not understood with that thought? Well, that's true. <laughs> okay? What's wrong with that thought that the only time I go to God is when I find myself needy? And he must get tired of my coming to him only when I'm needy. We are never without need. Thank you. 
Okay? We, we lose. God designed us to need Him. He designed us to need the Lord. If He could have given a system of rules and little things that we could follow that would make life wonderful, then we wouldn't need God. But He designed us to need Him. He created us to have fellowship with Him and He created us because He loved us. And He wants to fellowship with us. And we need Him all the time. It's just that certain times we're more aware of that need, but we always need Him. And you know what? It's a wonderful place to be. It's to wake up in the morning needing the Lord. And you know, the most fun thing I have is, Lord, what do you have for me today? And it just responds. These, th- these three young people plus, uh, I think, six others, I'm not sure how many were with them, they all saw a need and said, Lord, what would you want us to do about that need? And it's so amazing to watch how God put that all together. It's just amazing. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You are such a great God. Heads bowed, eyes closed. This morning, if you're here, just take a couple minutes to talk to him. Taste and see that the Lord is real. He wants to speak to your heart. And it's your heart and your heart alone that he is interested in this morning. And he just wants you to recognize how much he loves you and desires to walk with you and to have you walk with him every day. Father, thank you for loving us that you would send your own son to die upon Calvary's cross to pay for our sin. And that will that he who freely gave his only son do all things for us. Not for our desires, but for your plan. And our joy is in walking with you and being a part of what you have. Thank you this morning for Cornerstone. Lord, you've brought some awesome people together. An awesome place to fellowship and enjoy people. Thank you for the Spirit of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a wonderful day.